0: 36 and I'm going to read our sermon text this morning will be all the way through uh, chapter 16 verse 10. We're going to read three related scenes and uh, you'll hear why they're related to one another in the sermon this morning. I've entitled the sermon this morning Glorifying God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, God is himself glorious. He is truly glorious. He is ultimately glorious. And so when we say glorifying God, we don't mean that we, in any way, are adding to the glory of God. We can't make him more glorious. He's ultimately, truly, infinitely glorious. So what does it mean to glorify God? Well, in this life, we have opportunity to glorify God by walking by faith and not by sight, by showing this world that those great unseen realities of the gospel are true by the way that we live our lives. Pay attention as I read because you're going to see how Paul and Barnabas, Timothy and Silas all glorify God in these various situations. And then we'll consider how that applies to us today. So let's give our careful attention to the word of God. Again, Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 36, reading through verse 10 of chapter 16. Let us consider how it is that we can glorify God together. This is the word of God. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. The good news of Jesus Christ is truly glorious, it is absolutely glorious. The Bible begins by teaching us about God's good plan and mankind's greatest possible joy. God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where they enjoyed lavish blessings. They had healthy bodies, not knowing sickness or disease. They were fed by an abundant garden that produced a wide variety of the richest foods. And they were also given one another because it is not good for man to be alone You know that when God finished the work of creation, he looked upon all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. Well, I haven't even mentioned yet the greatest good and the highest reward that God had graciously given to Adam and Eve. On top of all of these treasures, Adam and Eve enjoyed communion with the living God. And in terms of what they experienced, it was their communion with God that was far and away their greatest joy and their highest blessing. Their relationship with one another, all of those rich blessings of that abundant garden, those were but small adornments upon their greatest gift, which was God himself, enjoying communion with the living God. Now, as good as all of that was, God actually intended to give them even more. How so? What could possibly be better than all of that? Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was placed in the garden as a picture of that initial purpose in God's plan. That tree was a trial or a test of Adam's obedience And he was granted access to all of the trees in the garden except for that one. He was commanded to stay or to refrain from eating of that tree. Why? What was the reason for this test? Well, had Adam obeyed, he would have been given access to another tree in the garden. He would have been given access to the tree of life. And what was the purpose of that tree? Well, that tree was at the center of the garden and the purpose of that tree was to bring Adam and all of his posterity into that even greater enjoyment of God forever. You see, Adam and Eve were made malleable. They were created upright and righteous, but they were also created changeable. And because of this, they could either be raised up and confirmed in a greater enjoyment of God forever, or they could fall. And they could lose that greatest joy forever. Well, as you know, all of this was then forfeited by Adam because of the deceitfulness of sin and the consequences of sin. Because of Adam's sin, we lost that close communion with God. And instead of naturally enjoying close friendship with God, we actually became his enemies. And so we should pause to consider the seriousness of sin and the deceitfulness of sin. Consider the blinding effects of sin. Because of sin, we became enemies of our greatest good and our highest joy. Sin made us enemies of God. Well, that is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so absolutely glorious. You see, despite the fact that we rebelled against God and despite the fact that we had become his enemies, because of God's great and immeasurable love, he determined to rescue lost sinners from that estate of sin and misery and to bring them beyond that original state of creation into that higher and most blessed state of perfect and unchangeable communion with the living God forever. Because of that great love that God has had for us, Jesus humbled himself. Remaining God, he became a man, and as the God-man, he lived a perfect life while enduring all the miseries of this world. Think of him tempted in the wilderness. Think of him betrayed by Judas. Think about him abandoned by the eleven. Think about him rejected by his own. Think of him condemned to die. Think about him mercilessly mocked. Think of him beaten, hung on a cross. Think of him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of him breathing his last, giving up his spirit. Think of him dead and buried. Then think of him risen from the grave. Think of him ascending into heaven. Think of him exalted to the highest place. Think of him having accomplished that great work of salvation for each and every one of his own. Think of him, as we heard in our call to worship this morning, in glory. Interceding on behalf of his own people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is truly glorious. So why do I begin in this way? Well, because the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the backdrop of everything that we read about here in our text. It is the foundation of everything that we witness here. You see, here in our text this morning, we witness God's servants, God's people facing many different difficulties here in this world we read about these men who have believed upon Jesus Christ now living their lives for Jesus in a broken world. And that is why we see them glorifying God. It is because the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly glorious. This text shows us what it means to glorify God in a world that is suffering from the effects of sin, in a world that is broken because of sin. So how can we glorify God through the trials and challenges of life? Well, our text sets before us three. We'll consider them each in turn. So let's begin this morning by asking the question and answering the question, how can we glorify God through conflict? Our text begins with conflict. It is a surprising, if not shocking, conflict because it is Paul and Barnabas that separate. Up until this point, we have watched as these two men have served the Lord together. And they must have had a very close relationship. Just think about how Paul must have loved Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas was the one who went out of his way to help the Jerusalem church welcome Paul into their midst. Remember, the Jerusalem church was unsure of this one who had previously persecuted the church. Well, Barnabas, that son of encouragement, was the one to come and to help make sure that Paul was welcomed by the church. No doubt, Paul loved Barnabas for that work. Think, too, of how Barnabas began to use Paul as his trusted companion in his work. When Barnabas went down to Antioch and he saw the grace of God at work there, what did he do? Well, he called upon his friend Paul to come down and to help him teach the saints there. And then together at Antioch, they were set apart by the Holy Spirit and sent out by the church to go on that first missionary journey. And on that first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas served together. They suffered together. They survived together. No doubt growing closer and closer to one another in a very close bond. And so when we see them here dividing, it's surprising. It's shocking. Why did they divide? What was the cause of their conflict? Well, as we examine the source of their divide... Notice that it begins with good and godly desires. Last week we left off with Paul and Barnabas enjoying time with the church in Antioch. They're, they're uh, preaching the word and teaching while the church is reveling in the goodness and the grace of God. And our text here now begins saying, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Clearly, Paul has this wonderful desire to visit those brothers in every city to see how they're doing. To encourage them again in the faith. Paul has a good and a godly desire. Barnabas does too. He actually shares that desire of Paul. When he hears it, he's eager to go. He says, yeah, that's a great idea. But then he wants to bring John Mark with them. You will remember that John Mark was with Paul and Barnabas when uh, Paul and Barnabas returned from Jerusalem back to Antioch. Mark went with them to assist in their work. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church in Antioch, he went with them to Cyprus to assist them in their work. He was there for all of the ministry on the island of Cyprus. But then when they left the island of Cyprus, the text made a very simple note. John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. So Barnabas has a good and a godly desire. He is looking upon John Mark and he is seeing a man in his assessment who has grown who is now ready to put his hand back to the plow, to get back to work. He has learned his lesson, but Paul Paul doesn't see it that way. And so we have this difference of opinion. Barnabas clearly believes that Mark is ready to return to the work, but... Paul clearly differs in his assessment. Paul thought it best not to take with them this one who had already withdrawn from them and had not gone with them to the work. So there's this difference of opinion. Both men having good and godly desires, they come to this difference of opinion, and it is at the intersection of these good and godly desires that this difference arises and gives way to a sharp disagreement. That's the language of the text. Literally, those words mean a long, a sharp edge. And so this means that all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas have a real disagreement. This is not a small matter. This is significant. This is weighty. Paul believes that John Mark has already disqualified himself. But Barnabas sees it differently. He looks upon John Mark and says, okay, I think he's learned his lesson. He's ready to get back to this work. So what did they do? Well, we see that sadly they divided. This sharp disagreement resulted in what was an unwelcomed division. This was regrettable. Neither Paul nor Barnabas wanted this result. There could be no doubt that this divide was disappointing to both of these brothers. Neither of them could have seen this division coming. Well, God's word always paints an honest portrait And here we see in the life of the church, there will be points at which good and godly men divide. But we need to notice a few things. We need to notice that this division does not create a new denomination. We need to notice that this division is not over doctrinal matters. Instead, these brothers are being very careful about this division And this division is one over a matter of judgment and really has to do with how to carry out their ministry. How to take the next steps in ministry. So while they do go their separate ways, they do so still united to one another as brothers in the Lord. These two were likely able to say with each other, say to one another, God be with you. May God bless you in your work. Because they could not agree about this difference. They couldn't walk together in their work. And yet they divided very carefully. And so as we examine this division, we learn much about what it looks like to glorify God through conflict. So what are the lessons that we can learn here? Well, let me just give three. First of all, do not allow disagreement to become the occasion for sin. This disagreement between Paul and Barnabas was no doubt difficult on these two brothers. It was difficult for them both. And our enemy would be eager to use the difficulty of that division, the emotions involved to lead others, or to lead each other into sin. Paul and ba- Barnabas were very close. These two shared that bond of brothers. They were like a band of brothers. But notice that Paul and Barnabas separate really well. I believe they see that this is just a difference in judgment. We differ among a matter of assessment, and though it did give way to a sharp disagreement, we need to notice that this disagreement did not lead them into impugning the motives of one another, into attacking the character of each other, or of failing to believe the best about each other. Instead, these men guard a good and a gracious posture toward one another despite this sharp disagreement. We, will, we, we see later on in the Word of God, Second Timothy being one of those points, that Paul actually speaks positively about John Mark publicly. He actually later on grows in that relationship, and so they are guarding carefully. How do we maintain the unity that we have, even though we need to, at this point, divide? So first, do not allow disagreement to become the occasion for sin. Second, don't rush toward division. The language of our text implies that this division took place only after great effort was given to work things through. And so when we have disagreements, even sharp disagreements, we need to guard that our emotions do not get the best of us. During these times, we need to remember that feelings are very often terrible leaders. Feelings can lead us into doing things that we later regret. And so instead, we are here encouraged to exercise great patience and to seek, if possible, to work things through which brings us to number 3 utilize the church notice what the text says about how Paul and Barnabas divided it says but it says Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus but Paul chose Silas and departed here's the significant words having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord why are those words significant well, those words teach us that Paul was commended by the church to the grace of God in his second missionary journey. And while the text doesn't say anything about what the church said about Barnabas's plan, we can at least note that these brothers were not making a decision about their divide alone. This wasn't a matter for just Paul and Barnabas. They were submitting themselves to the church. They were getting input upon their difficulty together. This was not a unilateral split. Instead, these brothers are seeking the wisdom of the church. They are seeking leadership from other brothers. They are submitting themselves to the church, not being self-directed or self-determined men. And so these are just some of the lessons that we can learn about how to glorify God through conflict. So that brings us to the second scene. How can we glorify God through complication? As chapter 16 begins, Paul and Silas come to Derby and Lystra and there they meet this disciple named Timothy. And Paul desires to take Timothy with him. He believes Timothy is going to be a help to him in his missionary journey. But as we read here in the text, there are many issues that complicate the situation. And isn't that often the way that things are? Situations are rarely straightforward. If you're in a straightforward situation, remember to pause and to give thanks to God. Because things are not always that way. Rather, they're often quite complex. Often they are very complicated. Here in our text, there are so many factors to consider. Perhaps many more than we can even realize. And so when we start to consider situations that are complex, we have to consider them from various angles. We need to try to understand all of the, flat, all of the facts. How do we glorify God through complication? Well, to answer that question, we, got, we have to simply think through the situation. We need to understand what is before us and have some sort of grasp of the various complicating factors. Let's do so with our text. To start, the text says that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. That's a complicating factor in this situation. Paul wants Timothy to go with them on this missionary journey. They're going to be traveling among many Jews to preach the gospel. But when these Jews learn about who Timothy is, the fact that he is half Jewish and half Greek is going to become, or likely going to become, problematic. It's going to be a potential hurdle to gaining an audience for the gospel. There's a second complication as well. Verse 4 says, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. What's the complication here? Well, remember that the decision reached by the apostles and elders was that glorious declaration that circumcision is unnecessary. That circumcision is not needed for salvation. And so Paul and Silas are delivering that message, (coughs) and in a way... That actually complicates the decision before them. How so? Well, on the one hand, if Timothy is uncircumcised, it may prove to be a stumbling block among the Jews. It may prevent them from gaining a hearing in which to preach the gospel. But then on the other hand, if Paul has Timothy circumcised, it may appear as if this is a contradiction. It may, it may confuse this message that they are to bring regarding the church's decision. Or Paul may simply open himself up to being charged with a worldly compromise arising out of fear. Paul, you're doing this simply capitulating to the culture. And so this is a complicated situation. Is Paul going to have Timothy circumcised for the sake of gospel ministry among the Jews? Or will he refrain because he's running the risk of contradicting the message or at least confusing the message that he brings and opening himself up to accusation? It's complicated. So what do Paul and Timothy do? Well, Paul and Timothy prioritize their witness and Timothy is circumcised. This is a concession that Timothy is willing to make for the sake of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. That's what Timothy is doing here. Timothy is willing to make this sacrifice so that he may enjoy the glories of the gospel with others. And Paul is willing to be criticized by others who may think he's compromising in this situation. Now, all of this actually highlights the importance of church councils and the decisions that church councils make for the sake of the church. Think about it. When the Jerusalem Council ruled that circumcision was unnecessary according to the word of God, that ruling actually opened the door for Paul to have Timothy circumcised as a concession. And since they were delivering now this decision of the church, they would have an easy opportunity to explain exactly what they are doing. The law of God no longer required circumcision. But because of this, Timothy is now free because the church has been clear about this. Timothy is now free to make this sacrifice, to be circumcised for the sake of the gospel being proclaimed among the Jews. That church decision actually helped clarify so that Timothy was free to glorify God in a complicated situation. So in all of this, we learn how to glorify God through complication. Again, let me give three ways. In all of these, there's many more. But let me limit myself to three ways. First of all, seek wisdom. I know it's obvious. When matters are complicated, it requires much wisdom. It requires a careful consideration of all of the facts and all of the perspectives to make a wise decision. But remember the promise of God. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Ask for wisdom, and God promises it will not be withheld. It will be given you. To glorify God through complication, seek his wisdom. Second, remember your purpose. The shorter catechism begins, as you know, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, here in our text, we see men who are glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Look at Paul and Timothy here, glorifying God through a complicated situation. These men are clearly being propelled... To glorify God because of the power of the gospel. They want to see God glorified before men. And they are eager and willing to walk through complicated situations for the sake of the gospel. And so the gospel, their gospel purpose is what propels them through this complication. Which brings me to number three. Consider Christ's sacrifice. Consider Christ's sacrifice. Here, Timothy is willing to make a significant sacrifice so that others will have the opportunity to hear the gospel. So why is Timothy willing to make such a sacrifice? Well, I hope the answer is obvious. It is because Timothy has his eyes fixed upon the significant sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Timothy sees his personal sacrifice against the backdrop of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, Timothy is easy, it is easy for Timothy to see that this is but a small sacrifice. Think, too, about the Apostle Paul. Timothy likely met, Tim, uh, met Paul in Paul's first missionary journey as he came through Lystra. And it may have been that Timothy met Paul when Paul was first preaching in Lystra after having been stoned. What would Timothy have seen in Paul? Well, he would have seen a man glorifying God, one who truly believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would have seen a man bruised and battered disfigured beyond recognition, yet preaching the glories of Jesus Christ. And in that, Timothy would have seen a man who believes the gospel, who is living in light of the gospel, another man whose eyes were fixed upon the sacrifice of Christ, which made him willing to make sacrifice for the sake of others. So consider Christ's sacrifice to glorify God through complications. Seek God's wisdom. Remember your purpose and then consider, keep your eyes fixed on the sacrifice of Christ. That is how we can glorify God in complicating situations. Well, there's one more here for us to consider. So how do we glorify God? Through confusion. Have you ever been confused? Have you ever been confused about what God's will is for your life? You likely have a good understanding of God's will for your life in a general sense. You know and understand that your primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You understand that. You believe that. But how do you make practical application of that? What about Monday morning? What does this mean next week and in a year or in five years or in ten years? Sometimes we can have great clarity regarding God's purpose for our lives in a general sense, but then the specific circumstances of our lives may be such that we are confused about what to do. And how to live out that God-given purpose for us. And that is exactly what we see in verses 6 through 10 here in our text. Here Paul, Silas, and Timothy are going about this mission work that God has clearly called them to. But what happens? Verse 6. They go through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Why? Because they have been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay. Setting out, they've been forbidden to preach the word somewhere. Okay, fine. Well and good. Well, what happens next? Well, the text says that they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What's going on here? Lord, you have called us to go and to preach, but now as we are going, you are closing one door after another. Forbidden to preach here, being kept back by the Spirit there. These men have good and godly intentions. They have holy desires, but it is the Spirit of Jesus that is keeping them back? I would say that's quite confusing. Lord, didn't you send us on this mission? So what are are you doing? And why are you doing this? Have you ever been in this place before? Perhaps this is actually a perfect parallel to your present circumstances in life. You have a good understanding of what God is calling you to do or how he would have you to glorify God in this world, and yet your present circumstances are confusing. Lord, I am confused. I want to serve you. I am trying to serve you, so why are these things happening How do we glorify God through confusion? Well, here in our text, God graciously gives Paul a vision, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. We all think a vision would help, right? If the Lord would just give me a vision, then I would have that clarity. God doesn't ordinarily give these kinds of visions, so how can we glorify God through our confusion? Yes, in many ways it would be easier if in those times of confusion God would just give us a vision, but we need to understand what's happening here in light of the whole of Scripture. You see, when we read God's Word, we learn that this kind of communication is really rare. Even in the life of the apostles, this kind of communication is extremely rare. Even then, this was not the ordinary way that God worked. And so we should not expect for God to work like that in our lives today. And when we look closely at the text, we see that understanding and following this vision still took careful consideration. How do we see that here in the text? Well, there's two things we need to see. First of all, this is the first place in the book of Acts that the first person plural begins to be used. We. We begins to be used, which means Luke, our author, has entered into the story himself here. He has been talking about others. Now he's talking about us. He is experiencing these things. But the second word we need to uh, see here is that word concluding, concluding. These two observations teach us that a conclusion still needed to be reached even when that vision was given and that that conclusion needed to be considered in light of scripture and with others. We concluded is the language of the text. The text says we sought and Carrying that through, it is we who conclude And so the point is this. In order to reach a conclusion, that vision needed to be carefully considered in light of Scripture and with the brothers. So in the beginning of our text, the brothers are confused. These men are confused. But then, by the end, by God's blessing and by his grace, in his perfect timing, God gives clarity so that these men reach a good conclusion about God's plan for their lives. And Lord willing, next week, we're going to see the fruit that it, bear, that it bore. We're going to see the salvation that God intended. So what are the lessons that we can learn about how these men conducted themselves when confused? Well, again, three ways. First of all, trust in God's sovereignty. Here in our text... God called these men to go, and God kept them from serving in certain ways. It was confusing. But in the end, God also gave them direction. So trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in his timing. Trust in his providence. Trust in his provision. Trust in his will. Trust in him. Remember God's word. No good thing does he withhold. From those who walk uprightly. Trust in Him. Second, search God's Word. While you wait, search God's Word. Search God's Word for wisdom, direction, preparation, and for patience. See the ways in which God works in His Word. Remember how He prepared even His own Son. As he grew in stature and in, and in wisdom before the Lord and how, how he grew through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Search the scriptures and see how God prepared so many of his servants. Moses, David, Abraham, so many more. See in God's word and then wrestle with God through that confusion. God's saints are often confused by their circumstances, and yet each and every time we see God providing a way. Third, continue where you can. Even though the men in our text are confused by what seems to be a contradiction between God's calling and God's providence, they do continue where they can. They pressed on. When one door closed, they went and they pushed on another. So continue where you can. To glorify God through confusion, trust in God, search his word and continue where you can. Well, as I mentioned earlier, God's word always paints an honest portrait. And in our passage today, we see some of the challenges of the Christian life. The challenges that God will ask us to walk through as his people. Following in the footsteps of Christ, we will walk through conflict, we will find ourselves in complicated situations, and we will see circumstances and seasons of life that are very confusing. But God does not simply tell us it will be this way. He does. But he also provides us with what we need to strengthen us and to encourage us and to sustain us to glorify God in each of these through each of these ask the question why would anyone as we see here in our text why would anyone continue through conflict why would anyone continue through complicated situations why would anyone continue with this kind or through this kind of confusion well that takes us back to where I began and the answer is simple because he Is worthy. It is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see Paul and Barnabas conducting themselves in a godly way even though it came about in conflict. It is why we see Paul and Timothy making a wise decision even when things were complicated. It is because both of those brothers were keeping their eyes fixed upon Jesus. And it is why Paul, Silas, and Timothy together continue right through their confusing set of circumstances. It is because he is worthy. So remember, your greatest good, your highest joy, is communion with the living God. And while Satan sought from the beginning to disrupt and to destroy that communion... Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has provided for that communion to be repaired and restored and one day perfected in a state of unchangeable enjoyment of God forever. And it is because of these and by these glorious realities of the gospel that we can glorify God even through the trials and challenges of life in a broken world. World, Let us pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord God, we pray that Christ would be more and more precious in our eyes. That we might see and behold him as revealed in your word. In such a way that he is, even now, by faith, our greatest joy and delight. Thank you, our triune God, for giving us the gospel. For sending forth the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior. And for beginning that good work in us that you promised to bring to completion. Thank you for what we can enjoy even now because of the gospel that by faith we can enjoy this kind of communion, where by faith we can behold you and commune with you. And we thank you for the promise that one day faith will give way to sight. And when faith gives way to sight and we are glorified, there will be none of the brokenness that we see here in our text. But instead, we will be made like you, Lord Jesus, because we will see you as you are. And then there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, but instead that glorious, perfect, face-to-face communion with you, the living God. And so we pray that you would strengthen us now by the gospel, that we might have joy and peace by by believing, and so bring glory to you as we live in a broken world. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing of some of what this looks like to glorify God in the pilgrim journey. Let's turn together in our psalm books to Psalm 84a. Psalm 84a. It says, Blessed they who in your strength confide. And in whose heart are pilgrims' way, they make the veil of tears a spring.